Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, Politics Plus Media 101 listeners from wherever you are tuning in around the world. So today we have a very special show and we are departing from U.S. domestic politics and parliamentary procedure and the House floor fight for speaker. And we are moving towards foreign affairs and specifically Venezuela. We have noted author and journalist William Newman. He is the most recent author of Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, which came out in March 2022. So, William, we want to thank you for joining us today and, and ask how things are going. Thanks for having me, uh, Justin and John. Pleasure to be here. So, William, I noticed that when you first went to Venezuela in 2012, you were there as the New York Times' Andean correspondent. I thought that this was an interesting job title because it suggests that you were covering not only Venezuela from a basis in Caracas, but also the Andean region and all the Andean countries. And it made me curious about how the New York Times covers South America. So could you tell us a little bit about that experience and kind of what your role was for the paper and how they approached the continent? Sure, absolutely. The Times then and still uh, has two people uh, down in South America. And I should say I was at the Times for 15 years and I left the Times in 2019 uh, when I started writing on the book about Venezuela. The way it was done then and still is that we had two people in South America. I had the Andes region, which was uh, Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, uh, and also the little countries on the shoulder there, Guyana and uh, Suriname and French Guyana. And then another correspondent who was based in Brazil covered Brazil, the southern cone countries of Argentina, Uruguay, uh, Paraguay also, and uh, Chile. So basically, we split that. Sometimes I would, you know, uh, fly to Brazil or Argentina or what have you to help in when, when there were big stories there. For instance, when they named the the, the Argentine cardinal uh, to become pope, or when there were huge demonstrations uh, against the government of Dilma Rousseff in in Brazil, I would uh, you know jump in there. But my main beat was the Andes, and I lived in Caracas. Uh, because and, and the majority of my time was spent there just because at that time, the, the sort of the, the greatest part of the news was coming out of Venezuela. I got there. I was very fortunate in the timing because I got there in 2012, uh, which was le- Chavez's last full year in office and he was running for reelection. So and the price of oil was over one hundred dollars a barrel in Venezuela. You know, the, the entire economy runs off of oil and has the largest oil reserves in the world. Um, so when the price of oil is high, Venezuela is booming. And so I got to see Venezuela when it was booming and when it was prosperous. I got to see Chavez in action. I got to cover his last presidential campaign. And then Chavez, uh, in uh, at the end of 2012, after winning re-election, announces that he has to go back to Cuba uh, for cancer surgery. Um, he uh, dies in March of 2013, and uh, then Maduro becomes president. So I covered the end of Chavez. In the beginning of Maduro, and the beginning essentially of the what became this enormous economic crisis and collapse, because then the price of oil starts to fall in 2014 and bottoms out in 2015, and the, the money disappears. But I also covered these other countries, and you know, a foreign being a foreign correspondent is probably the best job in the world. I mean, it's an amazing privilege because you get to travel to all these uh, places and remote places in these fascinating countries and talk to people you would never talked to uh, otherwise. So uh, there was a lot going on in the entire region. Uh, for instance, in Colombia, there was the peace talks between the government and the FARC, the guerrilla group. So and you know, Abel Morales was president of Bolivia, uh, Correa in Ecuador. Uh, so there was all sorts of 
stuff going on must have covered. So William, thinking about and talking about how important this work was about bringing this information to readers in the United States and other English-speaking countries, it got us thinking a little bit about how it often feels like Latin America is undercovered proportionately, that the U.S.-based media spends so much attention reporting on Europe and the Middle East and today also China at the expense of countries that are closer to home and are in many ways even more important for American newsreaders. Do you think that that's the case and why? Oh, absolutely. It's the case. Uh, Latin America uh, Mm -hmm. is very much undercovered and it's really a shame. The reasons are fairly obvious. I mean, the news organizations chase the news and, and, you know, there's a tremendous, there's always been a tremendous focus on the Middle East, on Europe, uh, more recently on China and Asia. And, um, you know, now with the war in Ukraine, uh, often with all the conflicts in the Middle East, that's where the attention goes. And unfortunately, uh, Latin America gets um, relatively little attention. And it's a shame because the uh, you know, a healthy Latin America means a healthy United States and uh, understanding Latin America is important. And, and people, you know, often don't uh, really understand uh, how the region works or what's going on in the region. And now, for instance, we see this huge flood of uh, refugees and migrants coming to the U.S. and it's causing all sorts of uh, having political repercussions here. But I don't think there's a whole lot of understanding in, you know, among the broader public of what the causes of that are. And, you know, often there's not a whole lot of understanding in the U.S. government. I mean, I found when I was working on my book about Venezuela, um, there was a certain point in the Trump administration, um, once they turned to what they called the maximum pressure approach, that none of the people involved in the upper levels of decision making about Venezuela and the State Department, the National Security Council, the White House had ever even been there. People were making decisions. And I think that We've seen that over the years, often in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, there's this sort of hubris that uh, we know what's right for these places, whether or not we know very much about these places at all. Um, you know, you can you go back and you read about uh, the beginning of the war in Vietnam or the war in Afghanistan. There was a fascinating book that the, uh, some reporters at The Washington Post did recently. And just you see over the years, the same mistakes being made over and over, which are due to ignorance and, and essentially a lack of experience on the ground in a lot of these places. And uh, by the latter part of the Trump administration, they had kicked out the people who had experience in Venezuela uh, and uh, knew about it with one or two small, you know, exceptions. The guy who became the so-called ambassador to Venezuela had spent a few months there uh, before they shut down the embassy. So, you know, you have, it's an incredibly important region for the United States. And when you think about it, I mean, I think about this a lot. You look at Europe and the way that Europe is integrated and the tremendous prosperity that, and and stability that that produced. And you sort of wonder what would happen if we put that kind of emphasis uh, on, you know, our own region. I mean, uh, typically in a typical year, U.S. foreign aid to Latin America and the Caribbean totals less than $2 billion. Uh, recently, maybe it's uh, up to about $2 billion. Look at the tens of billions of dollars we've pumped into Ukraine uh, over the last year. Not that Ukraine isn't worthy of the aid, but um, it just tells you where the priorities are. So, William, you touched on a lot of things that we will get into, the Trump administration, U.S. relations to Venezuela, but we'd love to set the table here. So before Maduro, before Chavez, 
What did Venezuela look like? And what was basically the status quo that was ultimately disrupted by Chavez coming into power? Well, Venezuela is an oil country. Venezuela becomes an oil exporter early in the 20th century. Uh, I believe the first commercially viable uh, oil well was drilled in 1914 and starts producing oil. A couple of years later, they, get, they hit the first gusher. Um, and very quickly, uh, Venezuela goes from being an extremely backward country whose main exports were cacao uh, to make uh, chocolate and coffee and cattle hides to becoming the world's uh, largest oil exporter. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a dictatorship, the Gomez dictatorship uh, running Venezuela. Um, and it was a very backward place intentionally because the dictator is part of sort of his way of keeping control was to, you know, keep it. I mean, the, the development was extremely slow there. And um, it's often said that the 20th century didn't begin in Venezuela until uh, the early 1930s when the dictator dies. And all of a sudden, the country emerges into the 20th century and um, oil is already at the center of the economy. And it's only then that sort of modern um, institutions of, that we associate with typical economic, uh, social and government institutions start to develop in Venezuela. And and they all begin to develop and they're all influenced by the relationships and the dictates of an oil economy. Um, and so Venezuela, at that point, starts to, you get a lot of uh, economic growth in Venezuela in the 40s and 50s. During the, the Second World War, Venezuela is an important uh, oil exporter to the allied countries, for instance. And so you get this uh, long period of stable economic growth that extends into the 50s and the 60s. Finally, in, the, in 1959, um, Venezuela becomes a, a democratic country. Democracy starts then. Um, and uh, you're on this sort of very important upward trajectory of steady growth. And Venezuela at that time was often sort of referred to as a, you know, uh, a country that appeared to be heading, you know, from the third world, third world into the first world on a on a steady trajectory, and there were a lot of expectations for that. And then in uh, 1973 and 74, you get what we call here the oil shock, um, where uh, the uh, the price of oil doubles, um, and it's a sort of crippling shock for countries like the U.S., which are oil using countries, oil importing countries, but for the these sort of third world countries that were the primary oil exporters at the time, it was this incredible boom. And so what happens in Venezuela is you get this sort of gusher of, of money coming in. Um, and that's when this thing kicks in that people that economists call uh, the resource curse or the Dutch disease, um, which is you get this enormous uh, influx of income uh, due to, uh, in this case, uh, oil, uh, the price of oil going up. And the country just doesn't know how to deal with it. And you get all these sort of ancillary effects in the economy. And in spite of all this great wealth, the economy sort of goes into shock and, and starts moving backwards. And so even in the midst of the oil boom, finally, by the end of the decade, the with the oil price still going up, um, you uh, are going up again because you had the Iran-Iraq war, which, per, which pushed the price of oil up uh, again. Uh, Venezuela goes into a recession. And so... You have this boom in the 70s where there's this tremendous expectation within Venezuela that, you know, we're going to, the phrase was, we're building the great Venezuela. And um, everybody expected great things. The government promised the, uh, the sky to people. Um, 
and ultimately couldn't deliver. And then in the early 80s, uh, the country enters into recession and uh, a devaluation is declared in, I think it was 1983, uh, which they called Black Friday and sort of marked for a lot of people the, the end of the party and the beginning of the debacle. And then you have almost two solid decades of economic stagnation uh, where you know, the economy was moving backwards. It was either uh, in recession or, or simply flatlining. And so you had these dashed expectations and also the, the, the quality uh, uh, of life uh, for lots of people uh, plummeted. And in, by the 90s, there's so much unhappiness with the, the government, with politics in general, with the political parties. People have sort of lost faith in the, the whole process. And that's when Chavez emerges. And in 1992, Chavez stages a coup against the democratically elected government of Carlos Andres Perez, and uh, it's a the coup fails. Uh, but Chavez becomes a celebrity because a lot of people in the country said, "At last, somebody's you know doing something. Somebody's trying to sort of break the pattern here." So Chavez goes to jail and is ultimately released, and then uh, decides to run for president in 1998. And he starts out as a well, no, he was essentially an outsider candidate, a disruptor candidate, um, a lot of the qualities that Americans would be familiar with, um, a lot of the same descriptors that people used when Trump emerged as a candidate, uh, outsider, disruptor, anti-establishment. And, you know, that's how he defined himself. Um, you know, he came, he was coming in to sort of clean house, to drain the swamp, even though that wasn't the, the phrase he used. He pray, He promised to rewrite the Venezuelan constitution after he was elected. And nobody thinks the guy's got a chance. And then all of a sudden, I mean, during in the course of the campaign, the other sort of establishment candidates fall apart and people gravitate toward Chavez and he wins. And he becomes president and takes office in 99. And then you get this process of, uh, you know, this sort of modern type of populism and the, the creation of what people today call these hybrid regimes, which is a person or a party that comes in using the institutions of democracy comes in through elections, but then over the course of time undermines those same institutions uh, in order to stay in power. And so Chavez stays in power through a series of re-elections, you know, which, I mean, he was popular. So he, 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 he won election the first time, he won election various times. You know, he did lots of things that are familiar to people, for instance, from Mexico, uh, before its current era of democracy, where it was one party that, you know, used the resources of the state and, you know, to get itself reelected. And, um, uh, you know, there wasn't outright uh, election fraud in Venezuela because it wasn't necessary. Um, but they uh, dominated the media. They shut down certain channels, TV channels for, or radio stations, for instance, that weren't pro-government. And over time, that continued. So before Chavez uh, won the presidency and then basically usurped the democratic order, which is not only a recent phenomenon, but we've you know seen it through the tw- 1920s throughout the world with a lot of folks like Mussolini and others and Hitler and so on and so forth. Was this a multi-party political system? And if so, then can we really characterize it as regime change that, that with Chavez coming in and being elected and then slowly changing the institutions? I don't think of it as regime change. I mean, when Chavez comes in, you had had uh, since the, since 59 or, or the early sixties, essentially a two party uh, system in 
uh, Venezuela, you know, very in some ways similar to the U.S. I mean, there was the there was one party that was like a social democratic party or similar to the Democrats, and then another party was more like a Christian Democrats or Republicans, um, and that went on for years. Uh, Chavez comes in, um, and by then the opposition, well, what becomes the opposition, the traditional parties were very much discredited. Um, and, you know, he works to establish the official party, um, which ultimately he names the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, because um, Chavez comes in as a leftist and he declares himself a socialist. And after a few years, he he says that the goal of his government is to turn Venezuela into a socialist country. Um, that's something I read a, lo- a lot about in the book. What I say and uh, what I establish is that Chavez was, for Chavez, socialism was a form of marketing. It was a form of branding. Uh, he didn't take any steps to um, replace a market economy. Uh, he did a lot of things that, which were similar to what Latin America do, did in the 70s uh, in terms of uh, uh, taking over, you know, creating state companies, taking over private companies and putting them in the hands of the state. Um, Chavez, there's a lot of Chav- Chavismo is nostalgia. It was nostalgia for the kind of romantic uh, uh, Latin American leftist uh, revolutionary rhetoric of the uh, 1960s. Chavez was, you know, a fanboy of, uh, of Fidel Castro. Um, you know, he became friends with Castro. He went to Cuba a lot. Fidel went to, to Venezuela. Um, but you know, essentially it was a form of branding. What Chavez really was, was a populist in, in the modern sense, as we understand it, which is this sort of illiberal person who, who, you know, identifies himself with what he calls the people, but the people is only part of the people, um, which is the, those who agree with him and then uh, stays in power through this manipulation of uh, the division in society and co-opting lots of the functions and institutions of government and democracy. So William, something that you wrote about and something that observers have always taken note about when talking about Chavez is that his initial period of popularity was coincidentally perhaps aligned with this spike in the global oil price, something that also benefited Vladimir Putin, who came into power around the same time and rode the wave of big public revenues from rising oil prices. And you talked in your articles about how uh, Venezuela had all this money that they'd earned from their petroleum revenues and reinvested it a lot on big, big projects. And it's interesting to me, as our listeners know, somebody who lived in the Gulf states, the Arab Gulf states, and has been watching them try to figure out how to navigate into a post-petroleum future, the decisions that you make about how you spend these proceeds that you get at times of oil boom will help determine the future of your economy and your system. And it's made me really curious about what Chavez actually did with this opportunity. How did he spend and reinvest the money that came from oil? What were the big projects? Well, well, there's a whole lot of things there uh, to talk about. Um, One, I'm glad that you mentioned Putin because uh, uh, it's interesting to note that Chavez and Putin both came to office uh, nationally for the first time in the same year in 1999. And what I always say about Chavez is that Chavez didn't invent these uh, methods of populism, but he showed he was a pioneer and that he showed that they were still viable and um, that they still worked. Uh, not that other people necessarily were co- uh, uh, copying Chavez, um, but the example was there for, for them to, to see. And a lot of these things were happening in different countries, more or less at the same time. But Chavez was really one of the first. Um, 
And then you also mentioned that Chavez uh, happened to be president when the price of oil goes up. When Chavez uh, takes office in 1999, the price of Venezuela the oil was less than $8 a barrel. Uh, during his presidency, it goes up to $120 a barrel. The boom of the 2000s, the commodities boom in general, but the oil boom in particular was even bigger uh, and lasted longer than the oil boom in the 1970s. So he has this tremendous bonanza uh, to take advantage of. And it's often said of Chavez that Chavez had charisma and that that was the secret to his success. But really what Chavez had was incredible luck because he was fortunate enough to be president during this enormous boom and to have all this money to spend. And, you know, oil at $120 a barrel buys a lot of um, popularity and, 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 you know, essentially that's charisma is, is money. Then you also mentioned the comparison to the Gulf states. And it's interesting because one of the patterns that you see is that the oil boom in the 1970s affected all of these oil producing countries, you know, the Gulf states, Norway, countries in Africa that produce oil. And they all at that time made a lot of the same mistakes. They all went through this sort of boom and bust cycle where the bust put them in worse conditions than they were when the price of oil started to go up or before it went up. Um, but by the second time, the second boom that came around, which was the commodities boom of the 2000s, most of the other countries had learned a lot of lessons from that and had taken measures and taken steps to avoid some of the same mistakes. The exception and the outlier is Venezuela, which made all the same mistakes all over again. But in any case, so your question is, so what did Chavez do with all of this money that came in? When I was working on my book and I was sort of trying to figure out a way to sort of encapsulate for myself as I was writing at the arc of Venezuelan, recent Venezuelan history, what I came up with was that it rained money, it stopped raining, and people went hungry. Um, and, you know, we all know that uh, that uh, oil goes in cycles, and the price goes up and the price goes down. Um, in the middle of these booms, sometimes you get this idea among policymakers that, well, it, the conditions have changed, and, the, and it's never going to go down again. Um, you know, in some ways, when you look at the cryptocurrency uh, craze or cryptocurrency markets, um, these days, there's some of the same things in effect where people, there's this idea that prevails among the uh, the fans or the investors in crypto that, oh, everything's different now. And there's this new thing that changes, you know, the basic laws of, of economics. So we can ignore all those. And it's the price is going to continue to go up forever. And well, we've seen that that's not the case. Um, but at any rate, so Chavez has this immense uh, bonanza. And uh, what he does is that he, um, he spends it in a few different ways. It essentially, he uses it in, in part to, to fuel this consumerist boom. One of the things that oil production does is it makes imports cheaper um, because you have all this uh, hard currency coming in. And so for the duration of Chavez, at least during the years when the price of oil was high, because it dips after the 2008 financial crash um, temporarily, um, was they just used some of the more money just to bring in lots of cheap products for people to buy. And that kept people happy, both poor people, middle class people. And he also sort of spends a lot of it. Essentially, basically, they spent the money, they wasted the money and they stole the money. There was an immense amount of corruption. Uh, much of it uh, centered around PDVSA, which is the state-run oil company, 
Um, you know, I document a lot of this in the book where you would have, uh, you know, a typical thing there was where uh, uh, somebody when doing business with Pedavesa would bribe the people giving contracts. And so what you would do is you would have a contract to sell equipment to Pedavesa and you would sell it to them at triple the price. And, you know, so you would make a, a profit and you would some, use some of your profits to bribe the people there. That just happened over and over again to the tune of billions of dollars over time. And then the, he did a whole lot of, you know, what we would call social programs. He announced that he was building hospitals and schools and universities and, and you know, building uh, dairy factories. And um, many of them were either never built or never finished. Uh, many of those that, that were built um, operated for a short period of time or operated poorly and produced very little. Uh, a tremendous amount of just waste and, and inefficiency. Then he also spent billions of dollars buying up companies and farmland or, or, or farms uh, and turning them into state-run operations. Um, uh, he spent billions of dollars, for instance, buying gold mines uh, in the southeast part of Venezuela that once he, he bought them and taken control of them from, in this case, some Canadian companies, never went into production. Uh, he bought the country's country has a large uh, steel maker, uh, the uh, an enormous steel mill called Sidor, uh, also in the southeast, um, and it had been started by the government in the late fifties, um, privatized in the nineties, uh, and then Chavez buys it back, I think, for two billion dollars. And uh, the year that Chavez bought it back, uh, it was at its highest production ever, and um, as of a couple of years ago, it was produce, producing zero. Uh, it wasn't even producing rebar. Um, I think now maybe there's a small amount of production, but they spent billions to buy companies, uh, often negotiating the purchase price and actually paying the money to the, you know, Verizon sold uh, its share of uh, one of the telephone companies uh, in Venezuela. Uh, to the government and made a big profit off of it. But a lot of com- but, but when they when he couldn't negotiate a sale, he expropriated the company. And what that's done is it's come back to bite them because they, you know, a company that gets expropriated in a country like Venezuela goes to these international arbitrations and international courts. And lots of companies have won enormous judgments against Venezuela for these expropriated properties. Um, Exxon is one of them, for instance, and uh, ConocoPhillips is another these uh, gold mining companies also. And so Venezuela now, when it's out of money, because the, the price of oil, well, it's come back up, but for, for several years was very low. Um, you know, now that it has no money to, to, to spend on, on the basics, but it owes billions of dollars to these companies uh, because of these ill-advised expropriations of Chavez that never turned into any kind of sort of productive activity. And just compounding that, I have experienced when I was working in the private sector right out of college of that happening in certain African nations to the company that I worked for, it dries up future foreign direct investment. Because if you can't guarantee that your investment is going to be protected and the rules of the agreement are going to be adhered to, what incentive does a company have to sink billions of dollars into a project in a country that there's potentially political turmoil? But William, I, I wanted to just follow up. Uh, you were describing... Uh, Chavez as kind of this charismatic populist that rode a wave of 
popularity and the power, use that popularity to transform the society, politics, and even industry, but he's not a socialist. So I was hoping we could just very briefly dig into that. And I know just the word term socialist is a hot button issue. It has different meanings in different parts of the world. It has different meanings in different parts of Florida, for goodness sake. But but more specifically, I'm hearing from this oil boom, we've used profits, Chavez being we, to purchase and potentially nationalize industries. You mentioned gold mines, oil companies, farms, steel, dairy, and then also lots of spending on social programs. So the question that I have really is, it sounds like if you also have price controls, for example, on uh, petroleum, where it's all largely given to the people and it's a state-run industry and you're trying to expand state-run industries, that that is largely what most Americans would consider socialism. The difference here is it was just potentially an inept managed government that wasn't able to follow through on these plans and then corruption crippled it. So is this socialism or is this not socialism? And how much can we just ascribe to the failure being folks in charge being inept? What is socialism? We could argue that for a long time and you could, you know, you could bring in AOC to talk about it or you could bring in, you know, uh, Marco Rubio, Rubio to talk about it. And I think you'd have a hard time sort of nailing down a definition. Um, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned price controls because, yes, uh, Venezuela had price controls, um, still does in theory, but not in practice, I believe. Um, but you know, most people don't remember that Richard Nixon put in place price controls in the United States in the 1970s. And so using price, because inflation was high at the time, price controls doesn't equate to socialism. Um, it's just an incredibly ineffective way to uh, try and uh, cope with rising prices. As I said before, there was a lot of nostalgia in what Chavez did. I mean, one of the sort of the magical things about Chavez or the one of his talents was to convince people that what he was doing was somehow new. Uh, he was very good at branding himself as the, the, you know, the innovator, the revolutionary. He he started talking about creating 20th century socialism. Um, that became one of his sort of slogans. Nobody ever knew what 20th century socialism was, but it sounded good and it sounded new. And you know, he renamed the the country the Bolivarian Republic, and he was you know the head of the Bolivarian Revolution. It's all just branding. And, you know, so, yes, he did, as I said, expropriate companies, uh, buy up private companies. Um, uh, but that's what a lot of very capitalist countries in Latin America did in the 1970s. Also, companies in, in Asia. I mean, uh, Korea has very important state-run companies. And South Korea is uh, obviously not a socialist country. Um, Venezuela is, it's always been a market economy. It's a very consumerist, uh, consumer-oriented culture. Uh, Venezuelans don't really have any interest in, um, in giving up that, that, that culture. I mean, they, they were forced to give it up because the money disappeared and there was nothing to consume. Um, but uh, the character of the place is very different. Uh, you know, one of the things that always struck me is that the sort of upper level Chavistas um, would go to Cuba um, and come back and or, or from there talk about, you know, how they wanted, you know, essentially they didn't use quite this these phrases, but it was clear that they saw Cuba as some kind of model. And anybody who's actually been to Cuba and not been a, a pampered guest of the Cuban state uh, 
can see that there's that's not a model for anything. Um, so that didn't really that wasn't that didn't really catch on in Venezuela except for a, a kind of a small core of you know alt, uh, very leftist uh, chavistas. Um, and you know, there's a lot of people. A lot of people find it very comforting this to put labels on things, and so it's very easy and comforting to say, "Oh, you know, Chavez was a socialist. Maduro, who's the president now of Venezuela, is a socialist." And so all of Venezuela's problems are uh, because of socialism. They talked about socialism all the time. Chavez put a red hat on, wore red T-shirts, um, but that doesn't make you a socialist. I mean, what do we want to say socialism is? Does it mean you know, taking steps to end the market economy, something like that? Or is it simply social programs, you know, which would make lots of European com- com- countries socialist, but they're not really, they're capitalist countries that have a, an important sort of social safety net or uh, an emphasis on, you know, social services. So I think it's really important to understand that Chavez used socialism as a uh, branding uh, in the in the service of populism, and you know, one other thing that I want to mention is that we haven't talked much about Maduro. Um, Chavez dies in 2013, and Nicolas Maduro, who was his, you know, handpicked successor, when Chavez goes off to Cuba for his surgery, he goes on TV and says, "If anything happens to me, I want you people to, I want, I want you to elect Maduro as president of Venezuela in my place," and that's just, that's exactly what happens. Um, so Maduro gets elected in 2013 after Chavez's death, and then he gets reelected in 2018 in what was essentially a manufactured election. He said he he banned the candidates, opposition candidates, most likely to you know give him competition. He banned uh, many political parties from participating. He he changed the electoral calendar and other electoral conditions to favor him. So he essentially set up an election that that w- was that he was going to win. Uh, Maduro comes in saying that he's going to continue the legacy of Chavez, but in the midst of this tremendous economic collapse, what he has done now is put in place what is essentially what a, uh, a neoliberal austerity package, um, which is exactly the sort of things that leftists, including Maduro, have spent their lifetimes uh, uh, saying that they oppose, but he has put this in place in Venezuela with essentially no public debate or public discussion or acknowledgement of what he's doing, but he's 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 slashed social services, cut the budget, opened the country up to imports, uh, cracked down on unions, uh, although it, that had happened before. But the kinds of things that uh, you know, it's exactly what we call a an austerity package, and the exact opposite of what anybody uh, would consider sort of classic or or even a sort of more modern type of socialism. Um, and to me, that just gives, the, that exposes the the thinness of this claim that, oh, these, these guys are, are socialists. I mean, not that I'm defending what socialism might be, but it's just, you can't, just because somebody says there's something doesn't make that true. Yeah, and I mean, even in the U.S. politics, and that's kind of the lens that I view the term from, there's great disagreement on socialism, right? You have folks say the Affordable Care Act is socialism, which is, ridiculous. However, when I hear nationalization of companies and industries and plans to buy up farmland along with price controls, along with massive social spending, that to me is one of the more classic definitions in the United States from a centrist perspective of what is socialism and what gives people pause for concern there. But 
we can have, you know, reasonable people can disagree on that. I, I just wanted to follow up regarding the the last little bit that you mentioned about the Maduro election and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but cracking down on political dissent. Can you get into, because when folks in the United States, Marco Rubio, let's use them as an example, or um, Venezuela's in Florida, they, they focus on the quote unquote socialism, but also there's political repression, repression of freedoms. It, it sounds like maybe this started under Maduro. Can you kind of explain where this political repression began and what it actually looks like uh, today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. Um well, the reason that there was there, I mean, essentially there was political repression under Chavez, but it was used, if I can, if this, this may not be the right term, but let's say judiciously. Uh, Chavez was, had a very good sense of when to turn the screws and when to let up the pressure. So you had political prisoners under Chavez, but there weren't very many of them. There was uh, a judge who issued a ruling that he didn't like, and, and so she was arrested and in prison for years. There was, um, you know, somebody who had been a political ally of his and then uh, came on and criticized him, and he was thrown in jail for years. Um, but the cases were, um, there was not a large number of those cases, and there was a form of political oppression that was essentially intimidation. Um, where Chavez has had these, um, what we would call shock troops, which were called colectivos, which are essentially gangs that operated out of um, the slums uh, in Caracas and other areas. And, um, you know, they, they were motors, they, they had motorcycles and guns and they would, you know, ride around and shoot their guns in the air and intimidate people. And they would do that when the opposition held a protest or, you know, on election day, that sort of thing. But Chavez didn't need a lot of repression because he had money. And so the economy was doing well. There was a lot of dissent, but he had a lot of support. When Chavez ran for, for re-election, he won re-election. Um, then Maduro comes in and the economy collapses and he, he intends to stay in power because that's sort of the central tenet of Chavismo is to stay in power. Um, it's not to make the country better. It's not to make Venezuela a socialist paradise. It's to stay in power. And um, so the repression uh, increases uh, quite a lot uh, with Maduro. And a lot of it's been um, documented by the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission, which has sent delegations to Venezuela. So you have political prisoners now. Uh, it's still not, you know, it's a different thing that we might associate for instance, with Pinochet or the Argentine dictatorships, um, you know, there's several hundred political prisoners uh, instead of thousands. Um, uh, there's not a lot of people murdered, but there are some people who are. There's a lot of intimidation among in the poor areas now of the country um, as they sort of started to lose their uh, their hold on the uh, loyalty in those areas. They uh, stepped up police actions there, and there's a lot of sort of repression in terms of uh, uh, police actions. They they go in, and and there's essentially what we would think of as death squads, but sort of official police death squads aimed at criminals, but also at uh, possible political dissent there. 
Um, so as the economy uh, uh, gets worse, and because uh, Maduro wasn't Chavez, he wasn't you know the great leader, um, so he never had the same kind of sort of blind faith that people put into Chavez. And so uh, a, a lot more um, repression and political leaders have been thrown in jail. Uh, they've been forced out of the country. Um, uh, there have been different you know, periods of very intense protests against Maduro and uh, people have been uh, you know, shot, intimidated, thrown in jail. Um, there was a period of very intense uh, protest in 2014 when I happened to be covering the country. And um, I did a, a investigation into what was going on there. And what I found was that, you know, the government had this sort of unofficially stated policy of uh, violent repression against uh, the demonstrators by sending the National Guard and the, the, and the army out, um, you know, armed with shotguns. And uh, I mean, the shotguns had uh, plastic pellets, but you can still do a lot of damage and kill people with with those if you fire at close range. Um, so I documented many cases of uh, excessive use of force against protesters, protesters being rounded up and, and beaten uh, in uh, military uh, uh, barracks, that sort of thing. And that's continued and gotten worse. And also there's a tremendous amount of pression, uh, pre- repression and pressure aimed at the media. Um, there's very little independent media uh, left in Venezuela. Uh, when I got there in 2012, um, the newsstands were just full of newspapers from all over the country. I had, you know, at least half a dozen newspapers delivered every day uh, that I would read, you know, as part of my work. Now there isn't a single, there's hardly any print newspapers left, partly because the, the government uh, took over newsprint imports. And so they just, you know, they strangled the the newspapers by depriving them of newsprint. Um, there are a lot of uh uh, websites, for instance, news websites, but many of those are blocked inside the country, so people can't see them. Um, recently, there's been a lot of radio stations shut down. There's a stranglehold on on television coverage. There's really almost no mention of anything critical of the government on television. You're talking about the relationship between the Venezuelan state and civil society and the media, labor unions, and so on. And it's made me quite curious about how the Catholic Church fits into all of this. We know that it's been a big fault line in Latin American politics, the clerical versus anti-clerical stance. We know that throughout dictatorships and democracies of left and right, the church has often had to navigate the relationship. I mean, the connection to the uh, Argentine dirty war, I mean, it was a resident issue in that context with the comparison that you've just made. Talking about the ideology of, of the regime, are they revolutionary leftists? Are they more just uh, mainline kind of populist play acting. It just made me really curious about how the church fits in and what the relationship between the Chavez Maduro era of the Venezuelan governance has been to the Catholic church. This may be a, a, a lack or a, a hole in, in my own reporting uh, or approach to, to analysis, but but I, I would say that um, the church has not had a particularly... Uh, a strong impact politically in in the country. Venezuela is a Catholic country, but it's not that much of a church-going country, Uh, not nearly as much as you see in in certain other uh, Latin American countries. So um, the church plays a small role. There is a a group of bishops that occasionally um, speaks out. Uh, I would say the church in general has been 
very, you could call it timid or, or measured in its response. Um, the Vatican occasionally has tried to step in uh, to get involved. At one point, the Vatican tried to mediate discussions between Maduro and the opposition. The person who's essentially the Secretary of State of the Vatican uh, had been stationed as the papal nuncio in Venezuela, and the the Pope, being South American, uh, also seems to care or or to, to 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 pay attention to what goes on in Venezuela. But for all that, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of pressure uh, internally from the Church in Venezuela on the political situation. So I want to transition, William, and for our listeners here again, William is author of Things Are Never So Bad, They Can't Get Worse. So go check that out in our show notes, right where you're listening on whatever app you're listening to us. William, I I want to get into the current economic crisis and specifically U.S. sanctions. Now, this is a very big topic about how they came about. Was there any overarching strategy? Was this the mustachioed master, John Bolton, just thinking that he can get one in here? But before we get into all of that, uh, what type of impact, material impact, have these U.S. sanctions that were put in place under President Trump had on the Venezuelan economy and the current crisis that we're currently seeing? Well, there's a, you get, when I talk about sanctions, a lot of times I'll get people either writing to me or, 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 or countering with this idea that um, the sanctions didn't cause the economic crisis in Venezuela. And that's absolutely true. And it's also to some degree um, not pertinent to the discussion of sanctions. Um, Venezuela Venezuela essentially has two crises that occur at the same time. Chavez dies, and uh, so the leader is gone, and that begins the political crisis. And then the price of oil uh, drops, and that begins the economic crisis, although the roots of the crisis were already there because of Chavez's bad economic policies. And the uh, tremendous, one of the things I didn't mention earlier is that Chavez uh, borrowed billions of dollars, which is something that Venezuela had done in the first uh oil boom, um, thinking that the money would always be there. And um, so the, the, the country is saddled with, uh, with tremendous debt, especially to China. Government spent huge amounts of money to get Chavez reelected in 2012. Um, but in, in, in any case, the, the economy uh, st- essentially collapses when the price of oil collapses and the money that fuels the economy disappears. And then Maduro makes things much worse by a series of horrendous uh, economic policy decisions. He essentially had no coherent, uh, there, he had, there were no economists on his uh, governing team, especially early on. And they made all sorts of mistakes uh, that uh, led to hyperinflation. At one point, inflation in Venezuela was over 300,000% uh, a year, you know, in one of these situations where stores are changing their prices uh, twice a day. Um, you, if you have any money, you have to spend it immediately because it's going to be uh, worth so much less tomorrow. Price controls uh, had big impacts. There was scarcity. Uh, there was, uh, you know, often the, the shelves were bare. Uh, things moved quickly to the black market. But at any rate, so it's the, the drop in the price of oil and then Maduro's just horrific, uh, catastrophic policy response that causes the, the economic collapse in Venezuela. And then um, in 2017, uh, uh, Trump becomes president. And there's two types of sanctions. There's individual sanctions, which had started under the Obama administration uh, aimed at Venezuela, where the U.S. government sanctions uh, 
people in the Venezuelan government or associated with it that they hold responsible for um, particular human rights abuses or uh, political, uh, you know, the causing, you know, anti-democratic actions in the country. But then Trump comes in and he starts enacting these general economic sanctions, uh, which uh, over time accumulate and they essentially cut off Venezuela from financial uh, markets. So Venezuela can't borrow money, it can't renegotiate its debt. Um, uh, PDVSA, the oil company and other state companies can't uh, get access to cash that they need. Uh, For instance, uh, when the electrical crisis starts and you get these national blackouts, they have... uh, uh, no way to to borrow money to finance uh, rebuilding of the electrical grid. It becomes difficult for them to just do the basic uh, sort of business of a state utility to to buy equipment. So they 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 conduct what they call a maximum pressure approach, and that's essentially where uh, John Bolton comes in. John Bolton becomes national security advisor, I believe, in 2018, um, and he, with no understanding at all of uh, really. Venezuela, the situation in the country, or the dynamic of its politics um, creates this new approach. And then in early 2019, you get this situation where uh, a young um, opposition legislator named Juan Guaido declares himself president uh, in a challenge to Maduro. He does it in coordination with uh, the White House. Trump uh, recognizes him as uh, Venezuela's legitimate president. And uh, so do many other countries at that point. Um, and Bolton's response to this is to say, "Well, you know, let's you know, let's 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 go all the way and 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 kick out Maduro." And so we're going to enact an oil embargo. And so uh, so the U.S. very quickly uh, uh, rolls out this sanction, which is which blocks Venezuelan oil sales to the U.S. and effectively to many other countries uh, because of the. The reach of the sanctions and and the U.S. financial system, and but they do that without any real analysis of what its impact may be. But in any case, so the, what I'm trying to get at here is that the the crisis is already in effect. The con- the, the economy is already has already plummeted. There's already uh, uh, refugees, economic refugees pouring out of the country, and then the sanctions come on top of that. And the sanction, the intent of economic sanctions is to uh, cripple the target economy. Um, And that's what they do. And so the sanctions uh, clearly make the uh, economic situation worse in the country. And today, where you have a situation in Venezuela where finally the economy has started to grow again, um, the sanctions make any growth uh, less stable, more fragile, and slower. Um, So they act as sort of a break on any kind of economic recovery. I mean, I think that at least partly answers what what you were getting at. So, William, we're talking about the U.S., as you characterize it, the maximum pressure policy, which started under Trump, and what motivated it, what was the intent, what were they hoping to achieve? And one little kernel of reporting that's been done on this topic has to do with the ties between Rudy Giuliani and other Trump affiliates and figures in Venezuela's business sector and in the opposition. And I'm wondering... Have you been able to identify to what extent corruption on the Trump side of the picture might have informed and influenced the policy that the Trump White House took towards Guaido and Maduro? 
Um, I haven't seen anything sort of significant in, in that direction. No, I'm not. Um, I'm not aware that there were serious. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but the. I mean, the motivations for the Trump policy um, were uh, U.S. domestic politics. It wasn't. There may have been people there hoping to make some money. Essentially, everything that Trump did wasn't intended to improve the situation in Venezuela, or even, despite Trump's claims, to necessarily get rid of Maduro. The U.S. didn't so much have a foreign policy aimed at Venezuela under Trump. It had a Florida electoral strategy. Um, And the purpose of all of this uh, was to make Trump look tough and to help Trump win in the what was it, 2024, 2020 uh, presidential election to help him win Florida. And it was quite effective at doing that. It was complete. It was a complete failure in, in, in achieving any kind of uh, improvement in Venezuela or regime change in Venezuela. But Trump did win Florida in 2020. Juan Guaido ended up becoming this kind of Bonnie Prince Charlie character that other countries were acknowledging as the rightful leader of Venezuela, but he never really became the de facto leader of the country. And this seems like a huge failure. I was reading recently about how uh, Charles de Gaulle went to Britain during World War II and said, make me the leader of France. I want to be the leader of free France. Even though he had no actual power to lead the country, they started acknowledging him as the leader and eventually it it happened and he took control of, of the country. And I'm wondering, how come Guaido was such a failure when others have succeeded at pulling off this trick? Yeah, I think there's uh, big differences between um, Europe in World War II and, and what we saw in Venezuela. I mean, for one thing, in in France, uh, with the Gaulle, you had the the Nazi uh, allied Vichy government in in charge in in France, which was a, a occupied country occupied by the Nazis, and so de Gaulle and the French created a government in exile. In Venezuela, you had uh, this effort to create a parallel government inside the country. Um, it's a very, very different sort of thing. And uh, one of the State Department uh, people that I talked to uh, for the book, and I quote him in the book, um, saying uh, one of the reasons that this had never been tried before was maybe that it doesn't work, um, you know, after the fact, uh, saying that. And um, the problem with... Uh, Guaido, uh, the whole sort of Guaido misadventure in Venezuela is that there, it didn't come accompanied with any sort of plan um, or any real strategy. Essentially, what happens, and it had very much to do with a uh, uh, very messed up, uh, conflictive dynamic inside the Venezuelan opposition. Uh, unfortunately, the opposition in Venezuela is made up of uh, a bunch of small parties that all see each other as rivals and enemies, uh, perhaps more than as you know potential allies uh, in their efforts to uh, to work against the government. And each of those parties, for the most part, is dominated by one individual, uh, and the parties tend to be vehicles for these personalities rather than you know the embodiment of uh, movements or um, or uh, some kind of electoral program. What happens is the Venezuelan opposition wins a big majority in the National Assembly, which is the legislature in 2015, and they 
have this uh, agreement internally that each year they will uh, a different party will take what's essentially the speakership, uh, the head of the assembly. And in twenty uh, coming into twenty nineteen, it was the turn of a small party called uh, Popular Will, uh, which is run by a guy named Leopoldo Lopez, who um, uh, had been uh, jailed uh, on bog- on a bogus conviction uh, by the government, and at that time was in house under house arrest. Popular Will, Will is a very small party. It tends to be quite radical, uh, not trusted by the rest of the opposition with good reason, because over the years they have sort of acted on their own and not um, tried to work together well with the the other parties. And uh, But at any rate, it's their turn to take over. And the head of the party, Leopoldo Lopez, um, uh, there's a lot of discussion because also in 2019 was going to be the beginning of Maduro's second term, which he had won in this bogus election that we talked about. Um, so there was a lot of discussion inside the opposition of what to do. And uh, some people had come up with this idea of having the head of the um, of the legislature be declared as a kind of interim president uh, using this uh, uh, part of the Constitution that provides for that in certain circumstances, uh, interim in the sense that, you know, he'll be president for 30 days until new elections can be called, something like that. So Leopoldo Lopez begins talks with the White House and the State Department to see if the U.S. is willing to um, uh, support Guaido if he declares himself president. At the same time, um, they're telling their uh, co-oppositionists in Venezuela that that's not what they're going to do. Essentially, Guaido uh, emerges, declares himself president of Venezuela, swears himself in at a public rally, uh, takes the rest of the opposition by surprise when he does this. Trump immediately endorses uh, Guaido, recognizes him. Other countries do the same. And, and that's how the whole thing begins. But there was no plan. Once they, The whole idea was that we'll do that and then everything will change. Uh, you know, we'll get all this you know, recognition. And then, and then magically they had two ideas. One was that there would be a military coup against Maduro because of this sort of overwhelming international pressure and you know, this upsurge of support for Guaido. Um, but that was a dream because they had no real contacts uh, of significance in the military to try and organize something like that. And the military um, is very, you know, it's been very much become an ideological institution and very pro-Chavez um, and almost a party institution in that sense. Uh, so there was, you know, little to no chance of that happening. And then their other idea was that, oh, you know, uh, Trump is president. So the U.S. will invade and get rid of Maduro. And that was never going to happen either. Um, so there was no plan or strategy beyond I'll declare myself president and then something good will happen. But nothing good happened. And they went sort of from one stumbled from one mistake to another until people who had, were very excited when this all started and the U.S. recognized an alternate president in Venezuela and all these other countries did. And people finally got fed up and they said, well, this didn't work. And um, they went back to just sort of. I mean, they never stopped to the hard work of just surviving in a country that had collapsed. William, you mentioned the possibility of a U.S. military intervention. I mean, that's probably the biggest difference between Guaido and de Gaulle, because in that situation, the allies intervened and invaded France and took out the Vichy regime and, and the Nazis. You mentioned that that this was part of Guaido's concept of possibilities, that perhaps the United States might intervene militarily in Venezuela. But you also mentioned that there was no way that that was ever going to happen. So I'm wondering, from the American side, did Bolton and Trump give Guaido any idea 
that they might militarily intervene in Venezuela. I'm sure for most Americans, we're wondering, did we ever really get close to this happening? And did we ever put out any any indications that we were, even if we weren't? Well, what happened was that Trump, starting in 2017, I mean, as I said, for Trump, this was not a foreign policy. This was Florida electoral strategy. And so in 2017, uh, more or less at the same time that the U.S. enacts its first general sanctions against Venezuela, Trump uh, at his golf course in uh, Bedminster, New Jersey, uh, when he's on vacation, uh, comes out and he says, you know, we're considering a military option against Venezuela or words to that effect. He, he talks about how the military option is, is possible. Um, so Trump had already uh, talked about that, not because Trump uh, had a plan to do it, but because it made him look tough. And that's what Trump liked to do. Um, so uh, one, by the time Guaido was president and before and during that period, um, there had been a couple of times when the military in the U.S. was approached by the people in the White House about planning for some kind of action against Venezuela. And each time the secretary of defense or, or the military had refused to, to do any of that. Um, I remember um, talking to people when I was doing my reporting that uh, uh, Mattis uh, refused uh, to even consider uh, uh, planning for a Venezuelan operation. Bolton, in his um, memoir, talks about uh, the the defense apparatus at the time, just shrugged it off. So um, there was never any receptiveness in the U.S. military establishment to plan for any kind of intervention or action in Venezuela. And, I mean, one of the people who had been at the... Um, at the National Security Council at the time told me it was sort of a dereliction of duty on the on the part or insubordination on the part of the defense apparatus because they simply wouldn't do it, even though the White House was telling them to. But no, that was never there was never any serious planning uh, for the U.S. to invade or otherwise stage a military intervention in Venezuela. At one point, they did sort of do military exercises aimed at sort of anti-narcotics ostensibly in the in the Caribbean. And that was sort of meant to sort of, you know, ruffle feathers in Venezuela or look tough. Um, but that was the the most that there was. So it, it seems like the Guaido experiment, we can say unequivocally uh, failed. And now we're at a situation where we have a new president in the United States. Dynamics have changed on the global oil market insofar as the Russia-Ukraine invasion, new sanctions against Russia, changing just maybe the need for Europe or the United States to introduce a new source of petroleum into the market, oil into the market. And Venezuela has been discussed. It's been discussed on our show. We had a CSIS energy expert on, and we got into discussions about what this could mean. So from your perspective right now, it seems like there might be a thawing of relations between the Biden administration and their approach to Maduro. What would be the biggest benefits from the United States for some type of rapprochement, for some type of normalization with Venezuela and the Maduro regime, which is a political hot button in the United States? I mean, I guess the, the immediate background to that is, first of all, Guaido, the whole sort of Guaido experiment has ended officially. In other words, the, the other uh, opposition parties that backed Guaido uh, just now, in uh, at the end of December, 
uh, agreed to formally put an end to his uh, interim presidency, and it essentially expired uh, uh, this month in January. Um, so there is no longer a, uh, uh, a Guaido interim presidency. They tried to substitute it with uh, a committee of the defunct opposition-controlled legislature, which the U.S. now says that it will recognize as some sort of uh, representation of, of Venezuela. So Guaido is over, and the question is, what does the U.S. do now? And Biden comes in, he's basically inherited this sort of failed policy from Trump, which is heavy on sanctions and the recognition of Guaido, none of which produced any positive results. And in fact, both of which uh, made problems worse in, Ven worse in Venezuela, the sanctions by uh, making any kind of economic recovery more difficult, and the whole Guaido experiment by essentially blowing up a bomb inside the opposition and, and in many significant ways weakening the opposition uh, in its efforts to confront Maduro. Um, so what should happen now? You know, the U.S. has very, in a very limited way, begun to ease the oil sanction by giving a license uh, under the sanctions to Chevron, which uh, has still maintained minimal operations in Venezuela, to begin uh, bringing some Venezuelan oil to the U.S. Um, uh, over the summer. They also did the same thing for um, some European oil companies. So there's a very small sort of loosening of the oil sanction. But there is an understanding that with the war in Ukraine and the much tighter world energy markets, um, it would be, and also with obviously with the price of, uh, of gasoline at the pump in the U.S. going up and being a political issue, that there would be a benefit to bringing Venezuelan oil back into the world market because under the sanctions, Venezuela has had to sell its oil in this sort of black market operation to refineries in China. Um, unfortunately, Venezuela right now, because of Maduro's mismanagement, produces much less oil than it once did. And so it couldn't immediately come, despite their immense reserves, they couldn't immediately significantly affect world oil prices with, um, uh, you know, if they started bringing oil to market again in the traditional way. Um, but there are benefits to the U.S. I mean, we've seen this tremendous most recently surge of uh, Venezuelan migrants and refugees coming to the U.S., and the, the root cause of that migration is essentially the economic collapse of Venezuela. Um, and you're seeing it today for a variety of reasons. Um, but obviously the, well, it's obvious to me, it's not obvious necessarily to others, but improving the economic situation in Venezuela would go a long way to uh, uh, giving people reasons to stay home and, and, and uh, and work there rather than leaving the country. Um, so some kind of easing or lifting of sanctions uh, could have a real important impact on the, the migration situation and also on the political situation in Venezuela. I mean, if people, 7 million Venezuelans out of 30 million have left the country as refugees, and there's a, there's a presidential election coming up in 2024. Um, if some... A uh, significant number of those people can go home. Well, they can go home and they can vote um, and take part in the political process. So, William, we're talking about all the reasons why the United States might want to pursue some kind of normalization. What's the appetite like on the Maduro side? I mean, some of these countries like Iran and Cuba, they, they seem quite ideologically bent against the United States. And even if they were given certain olive branches, might not grasp them. Uh, where do the Venezuelans stand on this? Would Maduro be eager to get on a more normal footing for the United States if he had the opportunity? I think the answer is sort of yes and no, or a measured yes. I mean, I think that there's uh, 
benefits that Maduro could derive from that. There seems there there is this general idea that um, Maduro is desperate to get out from under the sanctions, and Maduro is is there's negotiations that are going on now between Maduro and the opposition. Um, uh, they take place in Mexico. There's been one negotiating session, and we'll see if there's more. Um, but there seems to be this idea that the the leverage that the opposition has is, um, you know, if Maduro makes concessions and in particular things that will make uh, the elections in 2024 more fair to the opposition, um, then uh, the U.S. will lift sanctions or ease sanctions and that that is some tremendous, you know, desire of Maduro. And, and I disagree with that because Maduro gets benefits from the sanctions. He gets a political benefit because um, – he the sanctions allow Maduro to play the victim and say it's all the fault of the United States and their uh, embargo against my country and um, you know it, it it gives him ex- an excuse to to pretend that the the economic collapse wasn't wasn't his doing um, and he's also been able to show that he can survive despite the sanctions so with everything that the U.S. could throw at him he survived and that. That won Maduro tremendous credibility within his own political party. When Maduro came in in 2013, he was very insecure and uncertain within Chavismo itself. And now he's essentially recognized as the leader of Chavismo. And it's partly because he was able to lead the country uh, through this period of economic collapse, pandemic, and these punishing sanctions, and he could show, you know, look how you know strong and macho I am because I stood up to the United States, and so he gets important political benefits both sort of in a electoral scenario and and also internally in his party from that. And as I say, he's shown that 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 this country can survive uh, despite the sanctions. So yes, he would. There are some benefits to him in terms of economic improvement. Uh, that uh, would come from uh, a lifting of sanctions or an easing of sanctions. And then, you know, he also wants uh, to get out from under this cloud of being illegitimate um, and to uh, be able to sort of act as a sort of normalized political actor on the international scene. Um, So uh, the end of Guaido, uh, in that sense, uh, has a certain significance. Um, most countries have uh, have uh, resumed political, I mean, diplomatic uh, relations with Maduro's government, with the exception of the U.S. and a few others. So, just to follow up on that, what is the general sentiment towards the United States from the people in Venezuela? Because we're hearing that there's political benefit for Maduro to blame the United States. We see over decades the impacts that that can have from a top-down approach on a society in their views towards the United States in a variety of different countries throughout different cultures. So, for example, China's anti-U.S. rhetoric has uh, drove up anti-U.S. sentiment in their population. Is is it similar in the uh, in Venezuela, where the anti-U.S. rhetoric in combination with the sanctions, in combination with the economic crisis? 
has created a situation where most people see the United States as the villain? Or is it more nuanced than that? And maybe there is an opening based on public sentiment for some type of normalization. No, it's actually, that's a, it's a really interesting question. No, it's not like that at all. Uh, Venezuela has for a very long time been a very pro-US country in the sense of, you know, at the kind of ground level, people like the United States, they like US culture, they, they uh you know, when Venezuela was doing better, it used to be common for Venezuelans to to travel to the U.S., to go to Miami. Lots of, um, you know, people have, have relatives here, lots of contact here. A lot of that comes from the oil industry. Um, Venezuela is a baseball country, um, you know, as opposed to essentially every other South American country, which is a soccer country. Um, the second highest number of foreign players in the major leagues are from Venezuela. Um, so Venezuelans, by and large, are very favorably, they regard the U.S. very favorably. And when you talk about sanctions or when I'm out, when I'm in Venezuela and on the street and talking to people about sanctions, many, I mean, people, they're not stupid. They, 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 they both, there is this government propaganda that says the U.S. is staging an economic war against Venezuela and it's the U.S.'s fault that we're in such bad shape. People understand both things. People understand that the government wrecked the economy and they understand that the sanctions are making their lives worse. And they have the capacity to keep both those things in, in mind at once. There are, you know, diehard Chavistas who, you know, say it's not the government's fault at all. It's the fault of the U.S. sanctions. But I've never even from those people gotten any kind of real strong anti-U.S. sentiment in terms of, you know, I mean, they... They acknowledge the U.S.'s role in Latin America historically, which has often been problematic. But in terms of U.S. culture and 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 just sort of people from the U.S., there isn't hostility um, in any generalized sort of way. Well, well, that's great to hear. And you just hit on something near and dear to my heart, baseball, and not to get too into the weeds, but Venezuela used to have one of the best winter leagues in the world. And from my understanding of the way that Major League Baseball's players approach it, you know, the AAA players, uh, the violence in Caracas along with the economic crisis has kind of created a migration almost away from players attending that league. And now they're more likely to go to Puerto Rico or Mexico or a different type of winter league. And for the audience, a winter league is where these folks can hone their skills when Major League Baseball is out or the minor leagues are out. So hopefully uh, that will right itself along with the economic conditions in the country. But I wanted to quickly shift, William, to U.S. domestic politics and the feasibility of any type of softening of relations. So we briefly discussed the oil issue and how that's been terribly mismanaged, how it will, you, we implied, take years to build up capacity, build up foreign direct investment, and actually turn on that spigot so that the exports are back to a impactful level. But also, we discussed another benefit being immigration, which again, you would assume would take years after lifting the sanctions because it would take a whole of economy approach from the Venezuelan government and a bunch of other uh, factors would need to go correct to materially change the country. And that doesn't happen overnight. So when we're looking at the United States political situation where Venezuela has become almost a red herring with the word socialism and the GOP has used it to kind of paint all Democrats as socialists, from your perspective, is there any type of opportunity here 
through domestic politics for a Democrat, because I'm assuming it won't be a Republican, but for a Democratic administration to make material steps forward? Yes, there is. Um, I just wanted to make one uh, brief point, which is, um, and I made to make sure I didn't sort of miss, you know, give the wrong impression. The the oil production in Venezuela is extremely low right now, um, oh, mostly because of the bad administration of the Maduro government of the oil industry. Um, the sanctions have had an impact. Um, uh, uh, essentially on, especially on sales and where they're able to sell their oil. But the reason that they pump so little oil now is that they um, they mismanage the, the oil company, partly because as Maduro needed to consolidate power in the country and, and by the favor of the military, he put a general who knew nothing about the oil industry in charge of, uh, of the state oil company. Um, but at, at any rate, in terms of U.S. domestic politics, yes, that's one of the interesting things that's happening right now where you have this you have changes taking place in Venezuela in terms of the end of this Guaido uh, government or so-called government. And also in the U.S., you have a, a, a very different dynamic. And the, the key thing there is Florida. And for years, um, U.S. foreign policy, first towards Cuba and then more recently towards Venezuela, um, was always conducted through the filter of uh, electoral politics in Florida. Um, Florida uh, has been a swing state in presidential politics. It has the third highest number of electoral votes uh, of any state, I think tied with New York in, in that number. And um, so it's an extremely important uh, uh, state uh, in presidential elections. Um, and so small groups within the state, such as this small group of Cuban-American voters, um, have had an outsized impact, and those groups that those groups are very receptive to this message of you know socialism. And Trump really used that, and Trump turned Venezuela into the new Cuba, essentially. Trump uh, branded Bi Biden as a socialist. All Democrats were socialists, and he even said the the Democrats are going to turn Florida into, I mean, turn the United States into another Venezuela. And the reason that that works in Florida is because you have these uh, very large group of Cuban-American voters um, who have been uh, sensitized uh, to this issue for good reason for many years. Um, uh, and then you have much smaller groups of other uh, Hispanic voters. There's not a whole lot of Venezuelan-American voters, but the Cuban-Americans respond to Venezuela as an issue. There's Colombian-Americans, Nicaraguan-Americans, and they all respond to this same thing. Um, and so Trump really played that and he played up his being tough on socialism, being tough on Maduro to win that constituency. Um, now what's happened is uh, Biden won the presidency while losing Florida. And so that was the first indication that Florida was no longer as significant as a swing state. And then in the midterms, uh, Back in November, the Democrats got completely demolished in Florida. And that sort of cemented this idea that, oh, Florida is no longer in play. And then what that does is that it frees up the administration, a Democratic administration, to make foreign policy decisions in Latin America, in particular towards Venezuela, and conceivably towards Cuba, that free it from, um, for, that are freed from this uh, uh, political dynamic at home. And they can make foreign policy for foreign policy reasons, for, for rational reasons, rather than just to do the most extreme thing that will, you know, please a, a certain uh, set of voters or 
inoculate them against being labeled as as soft on 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 socialism. So that's what's happening now, and and you know that's a hopeful sign. And we may see, and I think we already are seeing uh, Biden trying to effort to make uh, Venezuelan policy more rational. Potentially, you know, he may take further steps to ease sanctions. Hopefully, there will be some resumption of diplomatic relations in some form uh, uh, with Venezuela, um, and to be to have the ability to have a more sort of creative, constructive approach that isn't sort of locked down to this one sort of lens, which is the Florida election lens. There's a lot more that I wanted to get into. I wanted to get into a little bit more about what life is like and what the economy is like for the average consumer, lower and middle class people in Venezuela and how they're struggling with the crime. But I think that we've spent enough time today. So maybe we can have another discussion with us in the future. Okay. Unless if you want to do one thing on, on that, because I'd like to talk about how it affects ordinary people. I think that's the most important thing of all. Let's just zone in then on, on one aspect. When I was reading your accounts and your articles about what life is like in Venezuela today, one comparison kept on coming to mind for me, and that's Zimbabwe. The hyperinflation, the fact that they've switched to the US dollar instead of the boulevard as their de facto currency in the country, and what that's meant for how their economy operates. But I also noticed a, a pretty significant difference, and one that I imagine makes life even harder in Venezuela than it does in Zim, which is that the homicide rate is so unbelievably high and tragically high in the country. I remember going to Zimbabwe and uh, collecting the the dollar bills that said $10 trillion and being reminded of that when reading your writing. But one thing that I didn't have to worry about when I was there was my personal safety. I knew that I could, even though the country was in this destitute situation, I could move around in the country without any fear that I was going to be harmed by another person. And hearing about how extraordinary high the homicide rate is, especially in Caracas, it's made me wonder how difficult life is on a day-to-day basis for people who are living in that city, knowing that they're in a really vulnerable safety situation at all times. Yes, the security situation in Venezuela has historically been, you know, very dire. I think that when I was living there, it's a, there, there are no official numbers. Uh, the government doesn't report the number of uh, homicides or other crime figures, for instance. But, you know, the unofficial numbers that would filter out were, I think that when I was living there in a city of 3 million people, there were over 3,000 murders a year. And at that time, there were less than 300 murders a year in New York City, which is a city of 8 million people. Um, so it's extraordinary. There was a tremendous amount of kidnappings, uh, and uh, there's also a lot of extortion that goes on in various parts of the country. Um, just sort of, you know, uh, low-level things for you know business owners to operate that sort of thing. It's interesting that the security situation has changed in the last few years uh, during the economic crisis. It's hard to know exactly why. Uh, There's a general sense that Caracas in particular is much safer now than it was a few years ago. Uh, Other areas of the country uh, as well. Um, It's patchy. Uh, There are slum areas of Caracas that are extremely violent right now. There's a a woman that uh, I wrote about in my book who lives in a big slum called Petare, uh, who lives in a very violent part of Petare. And uh, it's been the uh, focus of a war between a couple of different gangs uh, over the last uh, year or two. 
And this woman uh, where she lives is sort of on the edge between the two gang territories. And uh, there's people being murdered uh, frequently, uh, you know, gunfights, the bullets going through, you know, her house, that sort of thing. So there's our, there are areas of Krakas that are intensely violent and intensely insecure for ordinary people. But in general, uh, in, in also in middle class parts of Caracas, there's the sense that things aren't nearly aren't as bad as they were. There's one here's much less about uh, uh, kidnappings. I know a guy who's a security expert who works with uh, corporations uh, that are in Venezuela, and you know he used to routinely have to do um, kidnapping negotiations. And the last time I saw him, I think it had been a while since he'd, he'd, he'd had one of those. Um, one of the things that's happened, um, and a lot of this is anecdotal, um, you know, there's 7 million people left the country. Some portion of those 7 million people were gang members and, and, and criminals. So there is a sense that some of these guys just left. But the government also engaged in a very um, Duterte-like, Duterte of the Philippines, um, Duterte-like uh, campaign of extrajudicial killings aimed at gang members, uh, in particular in Caracas. And they would do these sweeps through poor neighborhoods and slums, and they would come in and they would round people up and, you know, there would be always several people killed and the stories that would come out were, were people that were, you know, they were supposedly killed resisting arrest or, or in gunfights with the authorities, but it was clear that most of that um, was just assassinations. And, and the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission has documented quite a lot of that. So to some degree, you know, to, to whatever degree that had an effect, um, that they either eliminated some significant number of uh, members of these gangs and leadership of these gangs that were uh, behind, um, you know, the drug trade and the kidnapping uh, in Caracas and other crimes or dissuaded them or, or, you know, persuaded them to leave the country. It's a, it's a changing security environment, but yes, so historically it's been, you know, and especially today, for instance, for this one family that I know in in the slum that happens to be in the midst of this gang war, which is partly involves the government. I mean, the for whatever reason, the the the, the gang that controlled the neighborhood. Uh, got in bad with the government and the government put in another gang to, or supported another gang to try and kick them out. And that's been going on for a long time. So I think we'll just kind of come full circle in our conversation. And having heard William elaborate on the crises and the narratives of Venezuela, we're reminded of what we said at the top of the show, which is about how Latin America, the neighboring countries of the United States are so under discussed in proportion to their importance to us here in America. As much as, especially people like me who have connections to the Middle East or, or Europe, as much as we continue following events that happen in the Middle East, Europe, East Asia, the war in Ukraine, we should remember to continue to pay attention to these countries that are so close to our own borders, that impact our own economy and security so acutely, and where so many millions of people live and have their livelihoods at stake.